season two of Well, That's a Problem, a social justice podcast on everyday issues. I'm your host, Abby Naraki, and today my guest is Stephanie Wilson. She is a PhD candidate in the sociology department at Purdue, and she studies medical sociology, gender, intersectionality, and health inequality. Specifically, her research focuses on how race, gender, and class influence provider-patient interactions and medical decision-making in pelvic pain care in the United States. So we're going to hear all about that today. She's also a strong advocate for applied sociology, which is using her research and her understandings of society outside of the ivory tower of academia, which is super cool because I'm also a strong advocate for applied sociology. I'm going to be including so many links to all of the amazing work she's doing and to the piece that I wrote about podcasting for her organization, Applied Worldwide. So please be sure to check all of them out. And of course, if you aren't already following the pod on social media, you can find us on Insta and Twitter at WTA Problem, all one word. So with that, let's get to it. Today, you have been graced with the presence of my friend and colleague, Stephanie Wilson. Say hi, Stephanie. Hi, everyone. I'm Stephanie. Stephanie, to kind of get us started today, can you tell everyone how we met and how you decided that we should be best friends? Yes. Um, so we met on, I think it was both of our first days of grad school at Purdue in our classical theory course. Oh my gosh, that course. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Learned so much about so many dead white men. <laughs> right. Which like we all need more of in our lives. Am I right or am I right? <laughs> yes. Um, but I think that moment when I was like, oh, we should be friends was, well, there were a few moments um, as I started learning more about you. Like you spent a lot of time in Guatemala. Um, oh, yeah, so true. Study abroad and knowing other people who travel and enjoy exposing themselves to other cultures outside the U.S. are always people I want to be friends with. Um, but then when she was saying she's writing her Marx theory paper, so Karl Marx, dead white dude who didn't care about women, on birth <laughs> <Right>. control. <laughs> and I can't remember the specifics of it. But I don't know that I can either, honestly, <laughs> so long ago. But yeah. Yes. But I was like, that's cool. You can take... Um, take a theory that has absolutely nothing to do with women or their rights or reproductive justice and decide to make it something that matters beyond what he was talking about 200 years ago. Yes. So. I think I called it birth control in the commune or something like yes. that. That's a good title. But yeah, that was when I decided I definitely wanted to be friends with this person. And the moment that I decided we should be friends beyond just grad school colleagues was when we went to our first conference together to actually present together in a round table and we got uninvited to dinner that wasn't even really an invitation only dinner yeah that was not fun <laughs> we were like what are we supposed to do now we were planning on going to this dinner and we got unofficially uninvited by someone in a position of power so we were like well we're not gonna go yeah so it was really awkward but we found a great we were in Albuquerque New Mexico so we yes. found a great restaurant to get some green chili and Mexican food and yep. bonded over a pitcher of margaritas that I regretted the next morning, but also not. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it was great. The memories are forever. <laughs> the hangover lasted but a morning. <laughs> yes. All right, Stephanie, thank you for sharing all about how we became friends. I'm so excited we're friends because now you get to be on my podcast. Yes. 
<laughs> but there is a particular story and set of circumstances that brought you here today. And I would love for you to share that with our listeners. Yeah. So this circumstance sort of tells the story of how I ended up researching the topic I'm going to talk about today on the podcast. Um, and it starts with my decision to get a Marina IUD for birth control purposes. Previously before that, I had tried the pill and I hated that. And then I was just using condoms. And then I decided to give an IUD a try because I had a friend who was really convincing and said it would be the best thing ever, <laughs> um, which it is for some women. I've talked to so many people who love it. My experience was not so great. Um, I just remember the day I got it inserted driving home. Um, nobody told me that I would be in so much pain that I like couldn't really see over the dashboard while I was driving home because oh I was gosh. just hunched over and mm -hmm. I ended up like running a red light on my way home. Um, Desperation calls yes. for it sometimes. So I got home and just spent like the rest of the day in bed with a heating pad and ibuprofen trying to sleep off that pain, mm -hmm. which the initial pain of getting it inserted went away. But um, like over the next few months, I just kept getting this really random pain in my pelvic region. Um, and I just assumed like it had never been there before I got my IUD in. So I put two and two together like it must be related to that. Um, and eventually I ended up calling my gynecologist to set up an appointment to figure out if everything was OK. Um, and I went and saw her and she was like, it seems placed OK. I'm like, don't know why you're getting pain. It should like ease up eventually. Um, and then I remember my parents came to visit for Thanksgiving and we had gotten we pitched in for tickets to a Colts versus Steelers football game. Whoa. <laughs> yes. it, was my, it was a Christmas present for my dad because he's a big uh, Pittsburgh fan. Oh, so we were, <laughs> we were going to the game in Indianapolis, and we don't frequent NFL games a lot. So we forgot that there's the rules that you can't like bring your person. You have to have like a clear bag of a certain size, what? safety things, you know. Okay. Um, I'm like, I hear this that. Is America, I, I guess. Yeah. This is the world we live in where these things yeah. like need to be in place for people's safety. Yes. So I um, we had both me and my mom brought our purses to like the front gates and they were like, you can't bring those in. So I was like, OK, I'll run back to the car and put these in the car and then come back. So I like literally ran back to the car up the stairs in the parking garage and like the pain that I was having on and off hit. And I was just like, oh, my God, no, not tonight. And I just remember the whole game like not really being able to enjoy it not that I'm a huge football fan anyways but you know but even time, like the time yeah right with your family right and even the drive back from Indianapolis we're like an hour away so it's not that far but I just remember it being like horrible just having to like sit and drive back that whole time um and so the next day I called my gynecologist again to be like it's not going away it's just getting worse um and I think I set an appointment for like the first time she could get me in, which was like a week or two away to do an ultrasound to make sure everything was OK. Um, and then it just like kept getting worse. The next week at some point, I remember being in my office and then like the pain hit and I just like couldn't sit up, which just hunched over. So I went and found my partner in the lab and was like, OK, I need to go home earlier than we said we would. Um, and I called my gynecologist to see if they could get me in earlier or like even see me then since the pain was happening right then. And they were like, well, no, but if you go to the ER, they can do like an emergency ultrasound to make sure everything's OK. And I contemplated that because that was never something I like have done before. But I was like, OK, we need to I guess I'm going to the ER. Right. I tend to be a paranoid person, but I also realized that that's just something that in general 
women when they're in pain tend to think we're overreacting because of a lot of the ways that society teaches us to think that oh yeah and we can <laughs> get into that for sure we're coming yes. back to that point so yeah I got to the ER waited four hours to for someone to see me by that point my pain had like come and gone because it's it was one of those things that like came in waves um and so once they like got me back into a room and assessed everything did an ultrasound they were like well it all looks good you're fine and I just felt like incredibly stupid and small and like I just really regretted taking any action to like advocate for my health in that situation Mm -hmm. so yeah I to this day, I'm like, I still don't really know why I was getting so much pain, but I'm convinced that um, maybe it was like ovarian cysts rupturing or something. And then I don't know. Yeah. I have no idea. But I got There's the so IUD out a year later and I don't have pain anymore. But Yes, no pain. <laughs> yes. Around that same time, though, um, is when I was trying to come up with a dissertation topic. Mm-hmm. And I came across a BuzzFeed video on YouTube That was a bunch of different women telling their stories of different kinds of pain that they'd gone to their doctors with and had been dismissed for, like convinced that basically it was all in their head or that even if they were having pain, there was no like underlying medical issue causing it. Um, So that sort of led me to looking into research on the topic. And I realized there's a lot of research on the topic of gender biases and pain assessment and treatment. Um, and a lot of research in the area of racial and ethnic biases and pain assessment, but not a lot that looks at the intersection of those and how that might impact women of color. So that's sort of where my research began. Yeah, which is really awesome. I love it when research questions come about to answer like real world problems that we encounter, right? And we think about oh, it's not just me that's experiencing this, like you found out in that BuzzFeed video, but that this happens a lot, right? And Mm -hmm. that like, you know, we can dig into more of the research on that and we can be part of the solution to that, you know, or at least be able to like express, you know, the voices of women who are in these situations a lot. And I mean, I was in a different situation where I was having a lot of pelvic pain and discomfort before I got my IUD. So I needed Mm -hmm. it for for period control because I was having such bad pain during my period that I couldn't drive because I'd be buckled over. I needed to pull over to the side of the road. A lot of what you were describing when you had your IUD Mm -hmm. that was alleviated once I got it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so like I had a long history of having a lot of metabolic issues and dietary restrictions like put on me by doctors to kind of alleviate some of my pain. Um, But none of them ever really talked to me about menstrual management. Um, I had to kind of do that advocacy work for myself and say, no, I want birth control, but not so that I don't get pregnant. I just need to help. Like I need its help to make this pain go away and nobody else is giving me other options. So I'm just going to go for it. And so it's really like, you know, there's such diversity in people's experiences with birth control methods, but that doesn't make the the experiences of women who are in pain and don't have a successful like time with a particular method invalid right yeah and I feel like we just don't talk enough about like the variety of experiences we can have with different birth control methods because it can be super empowering for some women to like be able to control a lot of the symptoms they have on their period And then like for other people like me and some other people I've talked to, it can just like make all of your symptoms so much worse. And to be honest, we don't really have clear medical understandings either of why that's the case. Um, And part of that is at least 
a lot of people argue part of that is because of like a lack of funding and research on women's health issues and specifically issues around our reproductive and sexual health. But like, why is it underfunded? (laughs) It's probably because it's hard to convince a group of people that this work is important and relevant and meaningful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's becoming like a lot of the providers that I've talked to in my research say that the sort of knowledge we have, especially around pelvic pain, is evolving and that we know more about it, but it's still relatively like unknown as to like how we should treat it. And it can be caused by so many different conditions that it makes it really complicated. But they talk about the fact that like the dissemination of that new medical knowledge to like medical practice is such a slow process that even if we're finding new treatments now, patients might not see those for like another decade. Wow, that's really (laughs) upsetting, right? I'm so upset that there are all these doctors out there who are trying to like be on the cutting edge of medical practice for the betterment of probably, you know, themselves, but as well as, you know, humankind and um, medical practice in general, but that that's not going to affect actual patients for another decade. Mm -hmm. And they've like some of the providers were talking about it as there's pros and cons to it. And like one of the pros, which my immediate reaction was like, well, if you if you know of a new treatment, why wouldn't you immediately implement that? And the idea is, I guess, like you give it more time to like build up more research so that we know the treatment is really valid and reliable. But there's on the other side of it, the patient's experiences, so many like I'm on 36 interviews and counting with women who've gone to their doctors with pelvic pain. Um, And so many of those women, a majority of them that I've interviewed, have said that they've gotten to the point at some point in their journeys where they were so desperate that they would try anything. So even if some sort of treatment isn't necessarily like proven, quote unquote, (laughs) in the research to work, um, some patients would like to have access to experimental treatments. And so I don't, I don't know. I don't know like where the ethics would lie with that and deciding like who gets access to those experimental treatments and why and what doctors are able to give them. But um, yeah, so that's sort of some of the pros and cons, I guess, of that slow process. (laughs) Yeah. Could you share some of the other experiences that you've been hearing like in your interviews? Yeah. Um, So I guess before I go into that, I should clarify that um, when I say pelvic pain, at least for the purposes of my research and also sort of how it's medically defined, it can be pain anywhere from like um, below the belly button or below to like the buttocks region, I guess. Um, So that can include pain in the vulva region and like pain during sex or pain that you get with um, conditions like endometriosis or uterine fibroids that are might be more like commonly in the same places you would feel menstrual cramps. So I've had a lot of women who deal with pain during sex or things like vulvodynia, which is basically the umbrella diagnosis for you have pain in your vulva region, but we don't really know what's causing it. (laughs) So, and then there's also been women with chronic pelvic pain caused by like musculoskeletal issues and pelvic floor muscle dysfunction. So there's such a wide variety of conditions that are causing women to deal with pelvic pain. Um, And their experiences kind of vary, I guess, based on the conditions causing their pain. But 
one of the things that has been common among all of the different women's stories I've talked to is that they've all had to see multiple providers, like at least five before they even started the process of getting a diagnosis. Five Uh, different doctors. mm -hmm. So like just to just to bring in some context here, going to one doctor and getting in with that doctor is sometimes hard enough, especially if they are a specialist or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And then think about, okay, you go to that doctor and then you have to switch doctors. You have to f- go through the work of finding another doctor that is covered by your insurance, provides similar services, things like that. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the pain is persistent. Yeah. And so in that same idea of having to find new doctors, um, there is some sociological research uh, by Jeremy Fries and Karen Lefty that talks about how high SES clinics or health clinics that are serving high socioeconomic status patients provide more continuity of care. So with continuity of care, meaning that you get to see the same provider over and over, but clinics that are mostly serving low socioeconomic patients don't have that same continuity of care. So if you're going to one of those clinics as a lower SES patient, Um, you're not seeing the same provider over and over again. So you have to do that work every time you go into an appointment to retell your story, your symptoms, convince a new doctor that your pain is real, all of these things. So that's definitely something I've seen as far as there being this like difference in experiences based on social class. There's maybe there's really only like a handful of pelvic pain specialists in the country. And so people who aren't able to get diagnoses they fly like sometimes like across the country which costs them tons of money not only like thinking about the money that they're spending on medical care and a lot of these specialists might not be in their insurance networks right yeah Yeah. and so there's I've ran into like support communities that raise money for different people in their community to be able to get to the doctors that can provide treatment and proper assessments for them but in a lot of cases patients without those resources just aren't able to see those specialists and it's such a specialized thing in medicine right now at least that if you don't see a specialist you're not very likely to get the proper treatment which is really unfortunate for so many women yeah and I mean on the one hand I'm like oh good I'm really glad that there are support groups that are able to you know really prioritize the fact that people do need money to go and get this care and that they're able to kind of you know sponsor women to go and get mm-hmm. the care that they need but at the same time i really want to be critical of the system that makes it so hard for women to get this care you know like yeah these specialists are rare in the country right now but like insurance should cover that shit like mm-hmm. that's unacceptable mm-hmm. and there was one woman i talked to um, fairly recently that she had to move states to get the care that she needed basically and she was able to do that because her and her husband had an online business and were working remotely so she could basically pick up her entire life move for a year to receive proper treatments for that whole year that weren't all covered <laughs> by insurance um, and she thankfully had family in the area where that doctor was that she was going to see. But she even, like, she recognized that she was really lucky in the fact that she had the resources to be able to do that. And had she not, she would have just been debilitated by her pain, like, continuously. Right, yeah. And, I mean, you think about all the things that women in the world, and, you know, particularly in the U.S., are asked to do, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, just daily life shit on top of all of that, trying to deal with this pain 
and advocate for yourself and continue to have the energy and resources to advocate for yourself in your own care. Mm-hmm. Like it's just, it makes me so frustrated. Mm-hmm. I know. And yeah, it's really like every time I get off the phone, most of my interviews have been over the phone with women about their experiences. And every time I get off the phone, I'm just like so frustrated with the experiences they've had. Like one woman, she had emergency C-section during labor and had debilitating pain after that. But her provider kept telling her like, come back in six months, come back in another six months. And Basically, eventually, like she wanted to move forward with legal action because she kind of realized that the pain she was experiencing was probably a result of something that happened during that surgery. But the doctor kept telling her to come back, come back, come back until like that time. Oh, like the statute of limitations. Yes, thank you. The statute the... of limitations oh my had God, expired. That's so shady. And she wasn't able to do anything. And she's stuck in a very rural area that, according to her, is sort of known as an area in her state that has just not very caring and compassionate providers. And she's very limited in the people that she can see. And she just keeps going back to the emergency room because there's like every time she gets the pain and there's nothing that anybody can do for her and she's not getting any anything yeah. back for the fact that like oh, she yeah, had this bad surgery or yeah, yeah. yes that's what I'm looking yeah <laughs> like she's not getting compensated for the bullshit which wasn't her fault like this mm-hmm. is medical malpractice mm-hmm. and I've watched enough Grey's Anatomy to know that the hospital is 100% liable for that shit mm-hmm. and you know the doctor is called into question about that like there's a good chance that there'd be an investigation mm-hmm. but if the doctor's being shady and running out the statute of limitations so that they are untouchable, that's an abuse of power. Mm-hmm. And that's clearly not prioritizing the medical needs of the patient. Right. It for sure is. And that patient will never really get to know what caused her pain. She can only speculate it. And part of that is because like nobody was willing to look into it enough for her. Partly probably because if it was medical malpractice, they didn't want to be blamed for it. Um, And again, this is, I should add the caveat that like, this is coming from the patient side of the story, but that's an important part of the story. That's her experience and that matters. Yeah. I mean, right. Because I mean, if you don't get the time of day from your care provider to really explain things to you, to help you understand the procedure that was performed on you, right? And like, I talk about this a lot when I lecture on like the history of forced sterilization in our country, right? Like so many women went in to give birth, particularly I'm thinking about Latina women in LA, you know, would go in to give birth and come out sterilized and they the doctors would say like, oh, you know, we gave you a form to sign and you signed it. Yeah, while they're in the thralls of labor and yeah, you gave them a form in English and their their first language is Spanish and they're, they're still coming to learn English. And also the doctors didn't explain to these women, right, that you came in to give birth, we gave you a C-section and in that process there were quote unquote medical complications, which just meant that they tied these women's tubes and you know now they're sterilized they weren't informed on that process and Mm -hmm. that's why we talk about one of the big pillars of reproductive justice is having access to care that is provided to you in your language in a way that you can understand that is comprehensive to everything that you need to know about the procedure so that you can be an expert in your own like healthcare and health management and it sounds like 
this is really related to what you're experiencing with the women in your study. Yeah. And that reminds me of a concept in medical sociology called cultural health capital. Ooh, I don't know this one. So it's a concept developed by a sociologist named Janet Shim. And it's basically, so it's a specialized form of cultural capital that can help facilitate communication and engagement during healthcare interactions. And so when we think about cultural capital can yeah. you explain that further <laughs> yeah it's one of the examples that gets brought up a lot when we talk about cultural capital is like if you grew up going to art museums a lot or, or the opera or if you went to country clubs or something like that so like when you're in a space and someone starts talking about oh I went to the opera you know how to navigate that conversation mm-hmm. and you know how to and that that helps you make connections with people in positions of power that then help you move through the world more easily. Like those are your connections for internships or or, um, other things like this. They help you navigate social space in a way that is to your advantage. Whereas other people who didn't grow up with those same experiences don't have, you know, the the cultural know-how to have an in-depth conversation about, you know, Rembrandt or Phantom of the Opera as performed by such and such an orchestral group or, you know, something like that. No, that was, yeah, that was definitely well said. So then when you think about cultural health capital, it's the same sort of idea, but just specific to your interactions in healthcare environments. Um, And so you can think about it as like different patient characteristics. And one example that Janet Shim uses in her writing is like um, the ability to communicate social privilege and resources that can act as cues of favorable social and economic status. So we know that our SES status as patients impacts the way that our providers communicate with us. There's research that shows that they actually give less diagnostic and treatment information to lower income patients. So if you're able to communicate social privilege and resources and show, hey, I'm a higher SES patient, you're going to be treated differently by your providers. Um, And so she also acknowledges that like not everybody can sort of hone in on cultural health capital as a resource. Mm -hmm. Like Abby was saying, um, if you don't grow up in like environments where you're learning a ton of information about health, maybe you grew up with a parent who was actually an MD. And so you're going to have a lot of cultural health capital probably. But yeah, providers can also play a really important role in sort of producing cultural health capital for their patients. So the way if if you have like a more disadvantaged patient come in, you can sort of educate them about like what's going on with the things that you're doing, not use so much medical jargon, explain it in ways that people who aren't medical professionals will understand so that people can start to accumulate that cultural health capital and then hopefully be able to use that in later um, healthcare interactions to benefit them. But that's not something that I see happening a lot. There's some patients I've interviewed that have talked explicitly about providers who've spent time educating them on what's going on with their body and why they're having the pain they're having and why the treatment that she's suggesting or he's suggesting or they're suggesting is the treatment option to go with. And um, the way that those patients talk about their experiences is very different than the patients who didn't have a provider taking the time to really explain what's going on to them. Yeah, I mean, it's, again, just so important for patients and, like, their well-being. I feel like, you know, Mm -hmm. I can't exactly speak to the research on this because you're the expert here, but 
from my understanding and from my own personal experiences, when somebody stops and explains to me, this is why this is happening. This is, this is what we know about and this is what we can understand. And here's what we still don't know. Mm-hmm. And like just engaging in that process of I'm on your team and I want to bring you into this conversation about what's going on with your body mm-hmm. is so helpful for me because it feels like, okay, like there is someone on my side. There is someone advocating for me who is engaged in helping me figure out what's going on rather than just trying to push me through the system or they have a lot of appointments that day or yada yada. So Steph, we've talked a lot about the experiences of your patients to help us really step into the research that you're doing and and the voices that you're hearing from these participants. And I think that that's really awesome. But I'm wondering if you have any other recommendations for like, you know, other cool research out there or resources or books talking about this or maybe podcasts or anything like that about these issues to help us engage more on these topics. So there's one book by a sociologist named Kristen Barker, and it's related but about fibromyalgia. Similar kinds of things going on in the dynamics in those um, interactions in the healthcare system, and it's called The Fibromyalgia Story, Medical Authority and Women's Worlds of Pain. So that's a really great book. And then there's also another sociologist, Joanna Kempner, who wrote a book called Not Tonight, Migraine and the Politics of Gender and Health. And so, again, different conditions that they're focusing on, but with the same idea that um, women face this barrier in the healthcare system where they're having to convince people of their pain because it's not taken seriously, especially if there's no, like, sort of visual evidence on a test to show that there's something to explain why the pain is happening. Right. Like you were saying, like your IUD was placed well and and all that kind of Mm -hmm. stuff. But then your doctor's like, because it's placed well, there's no reason that you should be in pain. So we can't do anything for you. Bye. Right. Yeah. And I've noticed so something like endometriosis that is typically like not always, but typically diagnosed surgically through like laparoscopy. Right. um, You can find physical evidence of that, but you have to go through this like process of traumatizing your body with surgery before and um there's some interesting research that i've seen coming out it's a very like new sort of area of research in medicine about the impact of like surgery on how our bodies process pain and i think that could have some really interesting implications for things like surgical diagnoses for endometriosis yeah so well endometriosis is an interesting one because there's so much misdiagnosis that happens with that condition with Mm -hmm. like misdiagnosing it as ibs Mm -hmm. and vice versa ibs getting misdiagnosed as endometriosis is that what i just said but the Mm -hmm. opposite um and because it is really tricky and you right now you can only get it diagnosed by surgery and you have to hope that when they go in for your like laparoscopy or whatever that you have cysts that are visible that you didn't just have one burst and there's not a new one forming yet and things like that I know a lot about this because I've had um, both myself and and many of my friends have gone through this process of trying to get diagnosed with something because Mm -hmm. we have a lot of discomfort it's a lot (laughs) it's a lot Um, And another sort of resource to go to from more of like a patient perspective is the podcast, the Women's Pelvic Health Podcast. Um, I haven't spoken to the person who is the host or creator of this, but I did speak to a provider who 
the creator is her patient um, and that's how I learned about it so oh, it's a patient who went through the journey herself of getting diagnosed and she just I think she invites experts from the medical field to talk about pelvic pain um, to try and sort of in a way help people accumulate that cultural health capital that's awesome yeah that's so cool I'm so glad that there are podcasts out there who are you know helping women engage in these conversations and navigate this really treacherous time in Mm -hmm. women's lives when they're experiencing so much pain Mm -hmm. I feel like it's important too to highlight how many different conditions can cause pelvic pain and like yeah um like there's endometriosis there's things like ovarian cysts uterine fibroids even ibs which is not a gynecological condition but women typically are going to the gynecologist when they have pelvic pain so that's like part of the reason why things can be so hard to diagnose because different specialists aren't necessarily communicating but we have a lot of things going on in our body in the pelvic region. Right, right. Because um, your uterus sits right on top of or underneath or something, your colon. Right, So yeah. like when things are going on with your colon, your uterus gets upset. Mm-hmm. And if it's a musculoskeletal issue, then like hopefully you find your way to a pelvic floor physical therapist, but not, again, not all the providers I've talked to understand how important physical therapy can be in treating pelvic pain, especially if it's like caused by musculoskeletal issues which again, like won't show up on a lot of the tests that you might get in the gynecology office. Yikes. This is stuff I wish that we were talking to young, you know, women and girls about even in like the sex ed classrooms or Mm -hmm. something, you know, like, you know, there's so, there's so many complicated factors that compound in going to a gynecologist and seeking care for pelvic issues, or even when things are going fine and you just need, you know, your checkup or whatever. Um, that I wish that there were more conversations about, you know, what to expect when you go to the gynecologist for the Mm -hmm. first time. I wish we were having these conversations more regularly and more openly with folks so that they can be better advocates Mm -hmm. for themselves. Right. And that's such a big part of it too, just culturally, like the way that we don't like to talk about these things openly. And I've had some of the women I've interviewed that have pain with sex have said like well the first time I had sex it hurt but I thought it was supposed to like right but it it, for them like that was not normal because they had some sort of underlying condition causing that Um, but we sort of the way that I talk about it is we normalize that pain and a lot of that has to do with like our conflation of gender and sex too so we see a woman come in with um, or somebody who identifies as a woman come in with pelvic pain or somebody with female reproductive anatomy if we're talking about sex and assume that well, if they identify as a woman, we might assume they have female reproductive anatomy and then assume that pain is normal because of that. Because, of course, if you have female reproductive anatomy, you're supposed to have pelvic pain, which is not true. <laughs> right. Minimal cam- cramping, I guess, but not but not, like, not debilitating pain. <laughs> yeah. Right. No. Uh, yeah. And I feel like it's really important to just get that message out there whenever possible. Mm-hmm. That, like, your pain doesn't have to be normal. Yeah. So Stephanie, we've talked a lot about, you know, women more generally, but I, I don't want us talking about women in general to default to white women. Mm -hmm. Um, and you talked a lot about the need for research that kind of comes at the intersection of identity between being both a woman and a person of color. So what, what do we need to know about the experiences of pelvic pain for like black women? Yeah. um, So there's really not 
a ton of research out there that's specific to experiences of black women or other women of color with pelvic pain in the healthcare institutions. But what we know like in general about the way that black patients in pain are treated is not very, I guess, optimistic. <laughs> Um, So there's a pretty well-known study in a journal called The Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. The study is called Racial Bias in Pain Assessment and Treatment, Recommendations and False Beliefs about Biological Differences Between Black and White Patients. So they basically assessed how residents and medical students rated patients' pain based on their race, and they found that when those medical students and residents endorsed false biological differences between black and white patients, so they had a set of questions they asked whether you thought it was true or false from like definitely untrue to definitely true. And some of those examples are like black people have more collagen in their skin, which means they have thicker skin, like literally. Um And so there were questions like that that they asked to see if they sort of believed in these false differences of um, between black and white people. And when they did believe in those things, they also rated black patients' pain as less intense than white patients. They made sure everything else in the experiment was controlled to isolate race to make sure that they were really measuring the difference in perceptions based on race. Um, So based on that research, and there's tons of other research that shows similar biases against um, Latinx people and patients and Asian American patients. All of the research I've seen so far has been in the context of the U.S., um, but hopefully there's more international research going on too. Um, So yeah, based on that, we can kind of assume that women who aren't white with pelvic pain are probably having their pain dismissed um, at higher rates than white women are. And there's researchers who sort of argue that in cases of conditions like endometriosis, it shows that white women in higher social class positions are more likely to be diagnosed, but they kind of attribute that to just diagnostic biases and that we're not necessarily assessing black women's pain in the same way as white women's pain and offering the same treatments and sort of route to a diagnosis. So they might not be diagnosed as much only because of these biases and not because they actually don't have endometriosis as much. Which like, all right, y'all, this just again contributes to the discrimination that women of color are subjected to in our society so it's just another example and it's in something again that's really personal it's hard for people to talk about and it's hard for people to have the continued energy and all of that to be able to continue to like persist and be like no look like this is real like again having to do all this work of trying to convince medical professionals that their pain is legitimate and that you know asking for treatment options and things like that like how do you not just feel so exhausted and shut down all the time? Mm-hmm. And it kind of ties into like the maternal mortality rates in the U.S. right now. Yes. Black women are three to four times more likely to die from childbirth than white women. Um, and I actually went to the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology conference last spring in May. That was 2019. Um for some field work, and they had a ton of sessions on um, maternal mortality rates and addressing these issues of race within that, but there wasn't a ton of, like, discussion on racism as a systemic issue, and it was more about, like, 
individual biases, which is important. We should hold individuals accountable, but also recognize that um, this is an issue that goes well beyond the individual. Right, because these individuals aren't engaging in bias, like thinking or practice in a vacuum, right? That this is something that they they used to be taught in medical school that black patients have higher pain tolerance than white patients and Mm -hmm. things like that and it that's why it's really important to recognize the historical trends in medical care how the medical system as an institution is is racist and racialized and how broader society also engages in these same types of attitudes and practices towards patients of color to their detriment Mm-hmm. And I should I want to point out there was one really cool session at that conference with it was mostly like providers who were had some sort of minority position themselves, of course. Yes, of course. <laughs> they were running a session on dismantling racism. And that was the only place I saw it talked about in a way that was addressing it as a systemic and institutionalized issue and that session was highly attended by providers of color and by women providers but it was compared to every other session I went to the attendance was really low Um, it was the first time according to the people running the session that they had any sort of like platform to talk about that at this conference which um, is the biggest gynecology obstetrics and gynecology conference in the country so It's hopefully like on its way, but it's got a long way to go. (laughs) Right. Yeah, for sure. Uh, And thinking about just obstetrics and gynecology as a profession, it was really built on the backs of black enslaved women in the U.S. Absolutely. Um, So there's a lot of history going on there. But if you look into Dr. J. Marion Sims, the quote unquote father of gynecology, um, he made most of his revolutionary, quote unquote, I guess, medical advancements in OBGYN medicine by doing unconsensual um, experiments, medical experiments, surgeries on black women um, who were enslaved. And that was before anesthesia was widely available. So Right. And even if it was available, right, he probably wouldn't have had the human decency to use it on these women who were subjected to his experiments and things like that. And that was really the reason he's considered the father of modern gynecology um, is because he was a doctor and he his experiments largely contributed to the institutionalization of gynecology. I have a lot to say about this. <laughs> yes, which this keeps reminding me of more books to plug. Um, one of them is called Doing Harm, The Truth About How Bad Medicine and Lazy Science Leave Women Dismissed, di- Misdiagnosed, and Sick. And that one's by Maya Dusenberry. Um, and then there's also a new book that just came out or is I don't even know if it's out yet yeah you can just pre-order it it comes out November 14th (laughs) so soon (laughs) it's called pain and prejudice by Gabrielle Jackson a call to arms for women and their bodies and then definitely need to pre-order that yes right and then the last one is called ask me about my uterus a quest to make doctors believe in women's pain by Abby Norman Um, and that one I've started reading myself but I haven't finished it yet Oh, I remember seeing that one on the shelves at the feminist bookstore in Andersonville. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So many books about the topic. Um, So pick one up and start reading. Yeah. Do you have any other recs you want to share? 
see. Well, if you are a woman dealing with pelvic pain or just a person or patient dealing with pelvic pain, one doctor I've heard a lot about from many different people I've interviewed is a Dr. Goldstein in San Diego. He's kind of at the cutting edge of research and treatment of different pelvic pain conditions. And as far as I know, he might be the only medical provider in the country that um, has been able to successfully treat people with persistent genital arousal disorder, or PGAD for short. Um, So that is a very misunderstood condition that is like stigmatized in the media. There's a skit on SNL where they're sort of making fun of this disorder that can cause spontaneous but painful orgasms in people. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is unwanted sexual arousal that people are experiencing. So things like that, again, is a very like, misunderstood not just in society in general but in the medical community to the point Mm -hmm. where there's like one clinic in San Diego that is able to assess these people's issues (laughs) in a way that's helped them yeah well and I really appreciate you sharing you know based on all these interviews that you've done like these are the doctors that come recommended by patients who are your participants I think that that's really cool that you're able to plug this doctor who has been a positive force in the lives of some of your participants. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we're going to take a break for a second. And when we come back, we'll talk about things that are rad. And we're back talking about things that we think are rad. And I'm so excited. I want to plug, because it's so rad, an organization called Applied Worldwide. And y'all have the unique opportunity right now to hear from one of the founders and CEOs of that organization because she's here with us today. Yeah, so I recently founded this organization with my partner who's also a sociologist, Luke Hanna. And we... Basically, our mission is to build a bridge between sociology and everyday life because we see all of the usefulness of sociology and the ways that it is rarely applied outside of the walls of academia. So we're actually currently running a campaign that we're calling our $1,000 pledge to promote sociological practice. So we're trying to highlight the work of sociological practitioners through creating profiles of their work on our website. And we're hoping to provide students with examples of sociology beyond the walls of academia um, and also provide a market value to sociological skills and services because it's a marketable discipline and it's marketable knowledge to have, but a lot of the time it's just not really valued as a marketable skill. Right, yeah. I mean, I remember, you know, telling people like, oh, I'm going to go study sociology in grad school. And they were like, but what do you do with Mm -hmm. that? Um, And I think part of the reason that it isn't seen as a marketable skill is people aren't taught how to talk about it as a marketable skill. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, I say, oh, I'm going to go study education. It's like, oh, I know what you're going to do with that. You're going to be a teacher. But the thing about sociology is, is it gives you a lot of skills to do literally anything. Like sociologists are valuable in any organization or role because of their unique ability to be critical about the interactions Mm -hmm. between individuals and their societies and their groups and things like that. So that does make it a little hard to place like, well, what do you do with that? But I think a lot of the work that you're doing that's really cool is you're saying like, look, we're just going to talk about these things because there are people out there already being public Mm -hmm. and using their sociology 
in a lot of different ways and let's let's celebrate that let's highlight that and you know let's make this a marketable skill let's make this desirable yeah so if you're curious about what sociologists do outside of the walls of academia we'll have some profiles on our website of different sociological practitioners and the work that they're doing the services that they offer Um, So that'll be coming up on our website soon. Yeah, I have a question because a lot of my listeners are grad students. Are you interested in highlighting the work that grad students are doing as well? Or how does that work? Absolutely. Um, So we have this campaign going to highlight work of sociological practitioners, but we also in general are always looking for contributors at Applied Worldwide. Sociology research is always relevant outside of academic journals, whether or not you're applying it yourself. And so if you have research that you want to write about and share um, in an outlet that's not an academic journal that might make its way to the public, we are promoting that work of sociologists through marketing on social media and search engines. So we're hoping to basically put research on relevant topics in the hands of people that are actually working in those industries. So if you're researching Um, education, for example, and you want to write about your important research and findings about it, we can promote that to people in the education industries online. So hopefully their eyes will get on that research and they'll be able to use it to make positive change. Which is so awesome. They're on Facebook, they're on Instagram, they're on Twitter. So if you don't follow them on one of those platforms or just, you know, Google them, then I would really like you to reassess your choices at this point because they're really cool and their work is worthy of showing. <laughs> Love Abby's support. Yeah. And our website is just appliedworldwide.com. Yeah. And what are your what are your handles? Um, our Twitter handle is at apply, A-P-P-L-Y, sociology. And then our Instagram handle is applied underscore worldwide. That's awesome. Thanks so much for being willing to like talk about this. I know it's it's hard to kind of promote your own work and, and talk about that stuff. Um, I know I get that a lot with the podcast. Like, yeah, I run a podcast, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like so cool to see you be so passionate about applied sociology and to really be like putting that passion to work, you know, and for the betterment of the discipline, I think. So, well, thank you. That's what we hope to make the discipline better because I believe in the power of sociology and I want the whole world to. (laughs) Yes. I love it. So what about you, Stephanie? What are things that you think are rad? Yeah. um, Okay. So another thing that I would like to say is super rad is social justice through dance. Um, So I'm so excited. (laughs) I've danced my whole life and I'm a dance teacher. Um, And I've recently gotten more involved in modern dance, and it's been sort of like a different journey for me in dance and thinking about movement more, um, I guess, just in depth and how it relates to society and how it can, like, um, facilitate our relationship as individuals with our environment. Um, So there's a lot of things that I've been learning, and one of those is that there's tons of groups doing social justice through dance. And my modern teacher at Purdue just uh, put... Um, my modern teacher at Purdue just sent me information on a dance company called David Dorfman Dance, who is basically seeking to destigmatize the notion of accessibility in dance and the interactions that we have in dance. Um, so I think that's really great. There's tons of other companies doing that. Um, and even though I've been a dancer my whole life, I just recently learned about um, the modern dance pioneer named Catherine Dunham, 
And she was doing, Ooh. have you ever heard of her? No, I don't think so. Oh, I'm so excited to share it because she was also a social scientist. She was an anthropologist and like a really badass dancer choreographer. I love that so much. <laughs> right? So she was doing like the prime of her work was in the 1930s and 40s. So it was um, a while back, but her influence is still really strong today. Um, so she basically explored the intersection of dance and culture through her fieldwork as an anthropologist, which is so cool to me. Right. Like, <laughs> oh, I need to rethink my research choices. Right. And like all of her movement was um, highly influenced by Afro-Caribbean culture and dance and including the historical connection of those cultural dances to slavery and colonialism. And her one thing that she always did when she was teaching or choreographing was making sure that each piece of movement, um, she broke it down to explain not only how you were doing it in your body, but what that meant culturally and where it came from and the historical roots of it. And I think that that's so important and so amazing. And I think that it would be great if we did more of that in dance today. But I love that so, so much. Does, what was the name of the... David Dorfman dance. Are they on social media? Like, is that something where we could like follow them and watch videos and stuff? Because I follow a lot of dancers through, you know, because I know you and you tell me who, what dancers I should follow yes. on social media. Yeah. So they are on Instagram as Dorfman dance, D-O-R-F-M-A-N. And yeah, you can catch all of their work there. I'm excited to learn more about them because I just learned about them like yesterday from my dance instructor, but she was like, you'd probably really be into this company, so. And uh, yeah, I think I'm really into this company after hearing you talk about it, so right? I'm going to follow. Yeah, making the world a better place through dance and sociology. <laughs> They're both favorites. <laughs> Stephanie, thank you so much for being on the pod today. I'm just, I'm so glad that we finally got to do this. You know, I feel like in this conversation, we've sparked 70 other episodes that need to happen now. Um, but I really, I really want to end on this question, which is where can my listeners get more from you and hear more about the work that you're doing and like all of that? Yeah. Um, so I try to be active on Twitter at my personal handle, which is Steph underscore Wills. So that's S T E P H underscore W I L S. Um, and then Abby mentioned earlier, I use Twitter to try to disseminate the things I'm learning um, in my pelvic pain research. You can see that on Twitter at <laughs> pelvic pain, P-R-J-C-T. That's the handle there. Um, but if you search pelvic pain project, that should come up or the hashtag pelvic pain project. That's so cool. And of course, Applied Worldwide, like we said, is on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and is a website. So you should definitely look into that. So Stephanie, thanks again so much for being here. I'm so happy. Thanks for having me. Oh my gosh. Of course. Not even a question. And y'all, that's a wrap on this episode and we'll catch y'all next time. Bye.